Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. My mommy always said there were no monsters, no real ones. But there are. Who are you? Ripley Ellen, Lieutenant First Class. Number 36706. Ellen Ripley died 200 years ago. You're not her. Today, as part of our Alien series, we'll be discussing Alien Resurrection. Starring Sigourney Weaver. Does it grow? Very rapidly. It's a queen. She'll breed. You'll die. Winona Ryder. He is conducting illegal experiments. He's breeding some sort of... Listen to me! He is breeding an alien species more than dangerous. If those things get loose, it's going to make the Lacerda Plague look like a fucking square dance. Shut up! Ron Perlman. Don't push me, little Cole. You hang with us for a while, you'll find out I am not the man with whom to fuck. Dan Hedaya. Ellen Ripley died trying to wipe this species out. For all intents and purposes, she succeeded. Not anxious to see her taking up her old hobbies. J.E. Freeman. Potential for the species goes way beyond urban pacification. Now, vaccines. Nothing like this we've ever seen on any world before. And Brad Dorif. There are no eggs. There is only her womb and the creature inside. That is Ripley's gift to her. Directed by... Jean-Pierre Jeunet. Hey, Ripley, I heard you like ran into these things before. That's right. Wow, man. So, like, what did you do? I died. Hello, and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Tell me, who do I have to fuck to get out of this review? It's Gally in Glasgow. (laughs) <laughs> and insert monkey noises here. It's Devlin in London. What's inside me? It's Patrick in Cardiff. Call! Get back up here! It's Matt in South Korea. <laughs> <laughs> in France there, Matt. Well, you, I thought you were in Paris. Yeah, I forgot where I was. Yeah, I was in um, post-apocalyptic Paris. Yeah, indeed. Via Austria and a very, very, you know, big Austrian star. Very good. Good impression. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, listeners, and welcome back, gang, to the award-winning movie podcast. Yes, indeed, indeed, where we go back in time and assess our old cinematic haunts in search of closure from the operating table in 2021. And, uh, And today, we continue our journey through the Alien series and discuss the much maligned and dreadfully gooey Alien Resurrection. So, uh, so gang, uh, what's our history with the fourth film in the Alien franchise? Uh, for me, I'd imagine this was a, a tentative VHS rental circa 98 when it first came out on video. Uh, my love for the series had already peaked with Aliens into Alien 3. And in those subsequent years, uh, girls and music were factoring more heavily into things and Britpop, Oasis and stuff like that. So... Uh, a couple of lads got me into Nirvana and I was just kind of out of uh, the cinematic loop for a little bit. It took a bit of a backseat 
before re-emerging in 1999 at college. So I don't remember flipping out over this one. It was an underwhelming first viewing. Uh, it wasn't quite where I wanted it to go. Uh, I was a bit puzzled by it and lost by the plotting. The Ripley cloning made no sense to me. <laughs> uh, on rewatch, I remembered the Betty and the diverse band of misfits. Uh, and I was, I was quite relieved when they, when they appeared. Guy of Gisborne making an appearance. Um, yeah, so I, it wasn't one that I remembered fondly, but it was, it, I also remember watching it as part of the series and, uh, thinking of it as a quadrilogy. Uh, I had all the DVDs. So it's, it's part of the bunch and it's something that we, we would definitely need to discuss. Uh, how about you, Gally? Oh, I see. I have really strong, vivid memories of the trailer. Um, they use the fantastic James Horner score from Aliens. And it was one of those old trailers, you know, with the trailer voice guy. And I just remember like right at the end when they're doing all the, um, you know, the fast cutting, lots of action, don't really give anything away. And it's like alien resurrection. I was like, oh mm-hmm. my God. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. I need to watch this film. And at that point I was what 13 years of, of age. So clearly mm-hmm. wasn't going to get into the cinema, even if I tried to sneak in, um, you know, not with that crap mustache of mine at that age. So um, I was very much just anticipating this one as a as a kind of huge, huge fan of the series. And um, uh, listen, sandwiches, uh, but I remember being so very, very disappointed, but, but kind of actually shrugged it off as a kind of meh, you know, like how sometimes you just watch a film and just go like meh, no thoughts either way, positive or negative, just meh. Um, but on rewatching this, sandwiches slightly out of the lunchbox, um, yeah, this one really made me quite sad. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to discussing it with you. A little nibble on your crusts there. Yeah. <laughs> Devlin, what about you? On rewatch, I, I discovered that I was very, very familiar with everything that was happening. So obviously, I'd seen it at some point. But I think that when you were saying about just sort of shrugging it off as a bit of a, a nothing, I couldn't tell you when I watched it for the first time. It was probably late '90s video rental, but. Um, I think I've mentioned on all of these that I wasn't outside of like aliens. Um, I, I wasn't su- like a real obsessive fan of the, of the series. Um, I just remember it not being especially good and uh, rewatched spoilers sandwiches. It's not. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, an, an odd one, an odd kind of film that uh, lots of parts of it kind of stick in your brain but not f- with any kind of, yeah, no great affection, but not really revulsion either. Very strange. Um, how about you, Patrick? Silly story first. Um, I don't know whether I said this on a previous LVRMP episode about the alien films, but I remember my first encounter and awareness of the film was in the cinema with my friend Joe. And <laughs> so that's 97, 98 or something. And, you know, being young teen, full, uh, stupid teenagers that we were. I think this trailer was back to back with Star Trek Insurrection. Oh. And because Resurrection and Insurrection sound a bit like erection, we, um, started to call the films, uh, so we called Alien, Alien Ardon, like for Ardon. And we called Star Trek, Star Trek Stiffy. <laughs> And um, that was my genuine first encounter with it. Um, a double bill. <laughs> yeah. And then I remember, of course, watching it with my family who we, we did the whole 
alien series at the same time i think when i was younger i remember watching this one i remember very distinctly my mum saying at the very end of the film oh it, it was different because <laughs> um, um i don't think her and dad were very familiar with alien and aliens and then this one but um my young teenage sandwiches i i really liked this film the first time i saw it when when i was i don't know 14 or whatever i was right um I thought, I thought it was great fun and mm. my, my family and I really enjoyed it. My dad is a big Ron Perlman fan and I think I took a lot of his energy towards Ron Perlman at the time and was like, yeah. And I loved Winona Ryder from, um, Open Scissorhands and that was my first encounter with it. And I recognized again, Gally, going back to the conversation we had on Alien 3, I recognized, I was like, wow, this is, these alien films are like, I, I can't believe that they're all a different genre. We spoke about horror, action, drama, and then this one being some sort of sci-fi fantasy thing. And that's what I took from it in the early days. Mm, Okay, well, I'm not going to say that you're wrong, but you were also (laughs) the same age when you were saying that you really enjoyed the film. You were calling it Alien Ardon. So (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) This is what it's all about, isn't it? Because... um, I, I went out on the twits. I went out on the socials and, um, and kind of put it out there, which I don't normally do. Um, but I was fascinated to find out what people enjoy about the film because I really was struggling to, to kind of find my lane for where I'm going to, where I'm going to sort of drive down and, and discuss the film and, 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 uh, you know, kind of give it some balance and, and also was I missing something? Was there something that, that just was it, was it to do with me or, so I'll be interested to hear your thoughts, Patrick, and all of your thoughts, because, um, yeah, I'm, I need, I need hand railing through this one, I think. Otherwise I might go, uh, full, um, Snyder cut, uh, <laughs> fandom. Gonna <laughs> <laughs> so, have a YouTube rent. Patrick, I think we all need a hand with this one. So help out our listeners and give us a plot synopsis for Alien Resurrection. 200 years after Ripley dove into the fire, scientists on board the Auriga successfully clone her and surgically remove an alien queen for their research. Wailing Yutani are long gone. The United Systems military are the company here who pay a group of mercenaries for precious cargo. Human hosts for their new research. Here we go again. Kel surprise! The aliens cleverly escape, and all hell breaks loose. The mercenaries from on board the Betty, along with some USM personnel, must now survive as the Auriga heads for Earth. Ripley, different now, evolved, helps the mercenaries, including Kor, a girl with a familiar secret, to flee the Auriga before it explodes along with the aliens. Along the way, through water and avoiding those pesky facehuggers, Ripley comes face to face with seven other attempts at cloning her, a sickening realisation of who she now is. Will her allegiance stay with humans, or call to nature after the fetal abduction of the Queen with whom a motherly connection is undeniable? On the cusp of escape after a skull-fucking USM asshole, Dr. Wren, Ripley witnesses the insane birth of a newborn by the Queen who has inherited human reproductive anatomy from shared genetics of Ripley. The newborn kills the Queen. Ripley is emotionally torn at the beautiful, beautiful butterfly who looks at Ripley lovingly. Will Ripley be able to kill her own blood? Her mummy always said there were no monsters, no real ones. But there are. Oh, God. I mean, you make, you make me want to watch it. 
Fantastic, mm. Patrick. <laughs> Haunting. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I, yeah. I hope that was okay. That was a hard no. one I found. This great. Yeah, no, it was good. It was good. And um, I, it leads me to open the floor to my big, big question, which is because this is the first time that on the show that we've, um, we've gone this deep into the roster of a franchise, right? So we've, we've done some sequels. I'm looking at you, Lord Merman 2. Um, but we haven't done a franchise, uh, a beloved franchise like this where we've gone this deep. So my opening question is after the kind of sour taste for most of Alien 3, that kind of dour note that Fincher left us on. Where would you have taken this story? Because clearly it's not fertile ground if you're going to keep Ripley around. Like you said, Patrick, we're going to go round, we're going round the boy again. I, it's funny. I wrote that down in my, um, in my notes as well. I quite enjoyed the idea of, you know, when we said the alien saving, uh, um, Rip, mm. Ripley and alien three, like what ifs and what could have been in here and how could it have been improved? And I, <sighs> Just to get to the backstory of, of, of the film and, and the production, Joss Whedon penned, he did like a 30 page treatment on a teenage newt adventure. Mm-hmm. And I'm immediately drawn to that and think, wow, that would have been really fucking quite cool. Cause newt was, um, it's a shame what happened to newt. And if she'd been cloned, I think it'd be quite interesting. But of course, I don't think fans would have watched it had it not had Ripley in it. Um, but I, I don't know. How, how do you do this film differently? How the fuck do you clone Ripley? It's just a, an absurd thing that you're just going to have to, if you're going to watch it, just like fuck it off and say, all right, fine. I've cloned Ripley. Somehow there's an alien queen inside her chest because her single drop of blood has <laughs> made her exactly the same as who she was 200 years ago. And like, all right, okay, fine. Accept that and move on. I think you, you, you're right, Patrick. You do have to meet the premise, um, at face value. And, and I just again, you're right to, um, add a little bit of context because we're going to be talking about Joss Whedon and uh, and the director uh, Jean-Pierre Genet um, and their what what would you know from the surface look like conflicting visions but you know Joss Whedon like you say pens a 30, 30 page spec um, you know essentially telling the tale of Newt um, the studio then gets Sigourney um, for a kind of record breaking eleven million dollars which in ninety seven is mental. I mean, I don't know what that is for inflation, but that's a crazy amount of money. So I don't begrudge her. Um, but they also told Whedon that they needed to have a part for Winona Ryder. I assume they had like a three-picture deal with the studio and they just said, we want Winona Ryder in the film as a prominent character. So he is having to juggle a few balls. I think, I think Winona was brought in for her age and the, the to attract a younger audience as well. That was the kind of reading I, I found. It's, inc- it's kind of an incredible idea to start casting an, an actor for a film, especially a film that's, like you say, a fourth film in a franchise, and they just arbitrarily say uh, Winona Ryder's attached yeah but there's no story yet so uh i'd i'd watched the um the the making of documentary just the first part of it i just because i was intrigued to see where this had all come from and uh what struck me immediately was um as you would expect just the kind of it's quite a mercenary nature um which is that fox basically wanted another film i guess because they thought that the um but i assume they wanted another film because they wanted to uh, uh, kind of stoke the embers of the, of the franchise that they felt had been let down in three, but they clearly thought there was more money to be made. 
David Geiler of Brandywine Productions, who's always quite a cantankerous and entertaining presence in all of these documentaries, uh, was dead against it. He said that, I mean, he didn't seem particularly enamored with the idea of doing a third. So certainly the fourth was, um, was, was not on his mind at all. And, um, uh, Sigourney Weaver herself said that the reason why she wanted to die off in the third film was that she wanted to free the franchise of her as a character and the baggage that she brings. And they basically said that, um, uh, that she doesn't want to have to keep waking up like another Cassandra running around to tell another group of men that another group of aliens has come loose on the ship. Mm. But that they, but the, um, according to this documentary, at least this is on set. Um, so this is kind of at the time, not retrospective, uh, both Winona Ryder and Sigourney Weaver described the script as amazing and very moving. <laughs> and, uh, apparently, uh, Weaver was really, really enamored of the idea of being able to create a completely different version of the same character. And she kept trying to make it even stranger and, and, and even more kind of out of the lineage of the film. And I thought that was interesting and but not exactly the most inspiring way to kick off a project absolutely and and i'll just i'll hold my i'll hold my horses on this one but when when sigourney because i watch those you know and they're fantastic and we've mentioned them every time we've done an alien film get get the quadrilogy don't get the blu-ray with no extras get the dvd version devlin's learned the hard way got three um, box sets yeah, look, <laughs> hey, hey, there's gonna be, there's gonna be a prize at the end of this episode, team. There is. Um, maybe two. <laughs> you guys get to win maybe. the one I don't want. <laughs> <laughs> Gally, what are the rules on, uh, on this? What would you do next? Uh, can we go back to the end of Aliens and work with those characters? Man. Or what, do we have to go Alien from... 3, Matt, would you? Well, Blumkamp wants to, doesn't he? It's a really, important question to ask which is how do you reinvigorate a franchise that seemingly lost its legs and i think sigourney's instincts in three and the studio's instincts was absolutely right you know she is the anchor the character is the anchor for the series you know the aliens themselves are not um, particularly uh, talkative as characters so you know you can't get to know them um so yeah i'm, I'm being serious though like you know they are there as they're the most communicative in this film oh yeah we will we will get into that we will get into that but but i just want to go quickly on that one that you mentioned there devlin about the character well this isn't ripley is it and that and that's yeah. i'll get into my big big problem with it but it's sigourney being sigourney it's not ripley and it's not a version of ripley this is a this is a real Frankenstein's monster of a performance, but I'll get into my thoughts on that one. As far as what you said, Matt, about the franchise, I mean, we talked about ifs, buts, and what you could do. Um, but, but strangely, I find that this film just kind of retreads three a lot. You know, she's a bit, she's sassy in this one. She's got real, you know, um, I wrote down that Sigourney is um, cutting loose and shooting hoops. Um, so she's <laughs> she doesn't care about anybody um, within the film. She's very blunt. Well, these are all the things that she was in three because, you know, in three, she wasn't a Cassandra. She try, She says, like, I couldn't give her monkeys. We just got to stop the alien. I don't really. And we see that. We talked about it in, in our discussion. So this one feels like a kind of halfway house between a sort of Ripley and an action lead performance that you'd expect from, you know, a Jean-Claude Van Damme or a, or a Sly. It's, it's so odd. It's really, really weird. What I would have done differently from what, which sounds like they had the basis for in an original script anyway, 
and it just didn't really pay off throughout the film uh, in the final product. But in the script was more of a, a, a relationship story between Cole and Ripley, Winona and Sigourney. And that was kind of, it doesn't translate. But also coupled with that, every alien film, and this is one thing that I, um, I will uh, blow the alien resurrection hard on trumpet for. Um, <laughs> uh, just to give you a nice analogy there. Um, it, every alien film has that, that element of, uh, pregnancy and, and birth and all of that. And I said in the synopsis, you know, the, the, um, the fetal abduction here. I do think it does get across the, a child that's been taken from a mother in this one, uh, at the end with, with, uh, Ripley's character and the, the emotiveness between her and the newborn and even the queen when she's writhing amongst the aliens, that really surrealist imagery. And I wish that they'd made that a bit stronger with, uh, core with, with, with Winona Ryder and, and Ripley. You know, we, we've had in all the films she, uh, with Bishop, she has a good relationship there, but natural affection to, a robot from a motherly point of view, whether that's why Winona Ryder was female, uh, cast as female as, as the robot, um, as the android as well. I th- I wish that was stronger. I wish that came across stronger and it strengthened the relationship and an emotive core throughout the film and it wasn't. But I do admire that, that it, in Joss Whedon's writing that this, um, or Dan and Banner, I, I, whoever, that there is that still that element of, um, thematic, uh, uh, pregnancy and and losing a child and the motherly instinct in the film yeah. yeah no i i agree with that patrick i mean one of the things that i did latch on to in rewatching it uh as, as a you know being older and being able to kind of um par through these things as we do on the show is that you can see that there's like little little pearls of of ideas you know there's, <laughs> yeah es- essentially there's there's like a almost a same in alien I, three yeah, yeah, same in Alien 3. But in Alien 3, I thought that, um, strangely, for a film that had such production woes, the script felt like it was more concise and mm-hmm. a little bit more, um, the through line tracked. Whereas in this one, there's, there's like, there's possible themes about identity, um, and about what, what being a human is and, and how, um, and almost like an identity trans, morphia kind of like what i don't feel like the person i i am i'm projected something that i'm not and there's also this interspecies stuff and who's there's there's like a postnatal depression going on like yes. you get you get rid of the the person that's directly your lineage and go for the second step all of that stuff is in there but my god is it just kind of it, 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 they don't even scratch the surface it's like well you may as well have just gone for a derivative monster in the house yeah. story because what's the point if you're literally just going to do a scene where Winona talks to Scorny about um being disgusting and not being happy with who she is and and they because weirdly you said about um the sexual politics Patrick I kept clocking on how many times everyone refers to each other as man so every character, right. talk, they, they even call call like man several times, like, come on, man, we need to get out of here, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So it's in there and, and knowing Joss Whedon now through his other works, I mean, we can't get past it. He's, there's been strong allegations, uh, about his behavior on Buffy. So depressingly, another person that we have to kind of put in a box mm-hmm. and say, 
possible scumbag tyrant. But he was he projected himself as being extremely liberal, extremely progressive. But he was he was brought on for like his, his writing of action writer Buffy and strong female characters as well. I think listening to to the two of you there just makes me think it should have just been kept to a trilogy. I I just think it should have just let it. <laughs> That's what you have done it, differently is not make yeah, the film. Just right? let it die. Uh, I I think you know there's one part of me that kind of wanted to see a Michael Bay alien film maybe on Earth, but I want the characters from Aliens to come back. I don't want a whole new thing. Uh, the, the idea of a teenage new, uh, well, that wouldn't be a teenage new, would it? Um, I guess it would be a prequel. Is that what you're talking about? Is that what he wrote? It, it was um, that Newt was uh, cloned. Oh, Newt was cloned. All right. Well, I can't be bothered with that either. So the, uh, I, I think Fox are the real greedy corporation here and they are the ones who want more money. I want to think that Weaver has integrity, but there's no evidence of it here. I think she's raking in the cash. I think it's 11 million a slice of the back end and she's a co-producer and she she's chucking her weight around. I think it's a case of, you know, when uh, Bruce Willis said, who's your second choice to play John McClane? It's like, there's no comeback to that. She has to dictate some of the direction here. And it, you know, it's a, it's very much a case of keep Sigourney happy and we can all come out of this thing a little bit richer. I don't think there's too much integrity going on at all. Yeah. I, I, Matt, you've just reminded me of, uh, I saw an interview in the Aliens documentary um, with James Cameron. I think James Cameron said that he uh, Sigourney kept asking him if he could write a scene where she fucks one of the aliens. And then he mentions how, you know, Whoa. she got her wish in Alien Resurrection when she's just sort of sliming around in a, in a, like a, a well, she loves all that. There's a, there's a Ghostbusters story as well where she jumped on a table oh, yeah. and started acting like one of the dogs. And she's very method like that. And some of that creeps in. Like there's a lot of weird Amdram kind of pretend you're a tree bullshit in this that, that kind of, it isn't in the previous three. There I think they uh, a bit of zooling. I mean, I'll... yeah, a bit of zooling on a table. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I bet Geiger loved this most, though. Like all that he, he surrealist did like imagery it, at the yeah. end is very, very Geiger. That image of her writhing amongst tails or bits of alien. I'll tell you what, though. Um, Danny Boyle was up for directing this, and I'd have liked to have seen what he did with this. Yeah, it was um, Danny Boyle. I think they went to Brian Singer as well, post Usual Suspects, and he turned it down. And then mm. we ended up with um, with uh, a French director who I'd... Now, don't get me wrong, I had not seen any of his previous films until after Alien Resurrection. Um, mm. And I also, when I latched on to cinematographers, because I was very much a Darius Conji fan, who, for those people that aren't into that, he also shot Seven. Oh, I got to meet Darius Conji on the set of Lost City of Zed, and I I, uh, I made a point of like, hello, I'm Patrick on the third AD. He was like, hello, I, um, just shake your hand and say thank you for Seven. And, it, and he was like, oh, yeah, go, yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, yeah, cool. Back to work. But yeah, with the director for this and the end that they went with was um, Jean-Pierre Genet, who for, for most people, they probably know this film and Amelie, which is probably, what, one of the most successful French films mm-hmm. kind of ever. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's been a, uh, a bigger French film. Um, I certainly saw it. Leon? Um, <laughs> yeah, Leon, yeah, maybe. Yeah, Fair <laughs> enough. That's a good shout. And Delicatessen, he was very popular for at the time. I mean, stylistically, I think that may have got him the job, to be honest. And it does seem that um, from, from again, seeing the, the way that he was he was brought on board uh, was that they, they were all blown away by Delicatessen. And, and I guess it was, you know, it was a bit of a flavor of the month type thing. I guess um, it's like there's only room for a couple of foreign films to break through per year. 
if you remember like uh like Tom Tikva a few years later with Ron Lola Run became kind of like the uh the, the darling for a little while and uh so I at the time I think it was just the um because he was doing so much stuff with like practical large practical sets and lots of little gimmicks and tricks and stuff that maybe they just assumed that um that he would be a good fit for this but um I did, have you guys heard any of, of the the way he talks on the documentary about how he got hired no yeah I, it's it's fascinating isn't it devlin i mean he essentially said why oh, do you want me i don't want to do the job like <laughs> yeah because of course he his his name became the the big one because of Amit Lee, but um delicatessen and city of lost children were co-directed with mark caro who was apparently according to everyone a bit more of a kind of maverick weirdo type and um he wasn't he didn't want to be involved he didn't want to touch the hollywood system he said you know they're gonna they're gonna drag you around and they're gonna put you through the the, the ringer but um Jeunet had had been trained in music videos and commercials so he was quite happy to just do the work that was put in front of him and that's basically he said how he approached it like I've shot commercials before. It's just a really long one. So he was quite happy to, to basically film the script as the script was. He had he said he had ideas, but I would imagine more of his ideas came in the form of, again, those little gimmicks and obviously some of his casting choices. The integrated lighting that Conji uses, again, it felt very, very delicatessen. If you've ever seen that film, you can literally just... Because to me, Devlin, is, especially because I know that you're a huge Terry Gilliam fan, it's almost mm. like a an extension of gilliam um but he's pushing the envelope and there's there's also a treatment that they did on the film to to get the blacks blacker so yeah. the contrast uh, it is, a, it silver, is it, it silver is it silver silver nitrate yeah. yeah yeah so i mean it it looks fantastic like you could from the opening frame you're like wow this film has got a a really distinct look well c- yeah. coupled with that the production design as well um i can't remember his name but he did batman and like the, yes the, again i think all the films are very strong in its production design and design of sets and stuff and here coupled with the cinematography it does look awesome Jeunet's clearly got an eye hasn't he it's it's a bit like the fincher thing that devlin you were just saying he's come out of commercials and um music videos again so it's it's kind of following suit with the series but with this new voice new vision and you can say what you want about the quadrilogy, but it's never really a retread. There are elements of a retread, but this is a, a very unique take on on it. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think he knows how to fill a frame really well with a lot of stuff. There's always a lot of smoke and sparks and doors and ladders, and he can direct. There's no doubt he can set a frame up and orchestrate action. And we've talked about Euro weirdness before. He's very. Mm-hmm. Very good at that, like a Verhoeven, Luc Besson kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and the, the way the camera moves, um, it's very similar to something like Demolition Man, I thought, or, uh, even some of the Michael Bay stuff on the rock, just that kinetic energy. And it seems it, it does more so like he's doing it to, uh, to make an interesting shot rather than to, yeah. to use film grammar a lot of the time though what's really unusual is that um uh one thing that i heard him him say which i actually thought was pretty awesome was that um when he came to he took it really seriously he came to the states and he didn't know a whole bunch about like mainstream american filmmaking of the of that part of the 90s and he went apparently him kanji and a couple of the other guys pitoff who we'll talk about later i'm sure uh sat around in his in his uh big rented hollywood mansion and they watched videotapes and dvds over and over again of um of films but also they were obsessive about watching the previous three alien films to the extent that they went and got the production notes of alien 79 
uh, to find out exactly how many camera setups Ridley Scott used. And then he got the production notes of a number of big summer action films from the 90s to find out exactly how many camera setups they had. And he said, we need to trend back over here. There's maybe like 800 setups in Alien and there's maybe somewhere more like 2000 in a, in a modern film said we need to come back to this but what's weird is that like you say the um the the editing tends more towards that hyper kinetic whip pans and 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 quick cuts what you just said i would never have guessed from watching the film it, it's, it's a little mad right and, and there are times mad. when i think you can tell though i'm just i'm actually watching the film right now just to kind of keep my anger up and um <laughs> i've just got to the sequence where they're standing around in a corridor after shit's all gone bad and they are basically doing the exposition dump and that is an <laughs> extremely dull scene mm-hmm. and it goes on for a long time and he tries to change the angle but it, it, it's kind of to no effect it's the um you know the who do i have to fuck to get off this boat scene i can't i quite like the random close-ups though and there's a. Uh... Um, a couple of name. crash zooms as well that feel yeah. very Michael Bay. I mean, that into one that goes Dominic into Pinion when he's when yeah. he's got the acid on him. Right, I love well, that. that could that could be Nicolas Cage on his knees with the flares. Like <laughs> yeah. that's the shot, right? Yeah. I mean, Matt, you said about the direction of Genet. I, I think you're absolutely correct. You know, visually, this man has clearly got a flair and a talent and and an eye. But my big problem with this film is not the visuals. It is the script and it's not just the script it's the way it's the performances so you know what what is your role as a director is it just to make things look great or are you also there to helm that wonderful thing that i always harp on about which is the tone and the film of this film is all over the show and there are scenes when he goes for a joke in a serious like in in, where the emotion and the the emotional beats are supposed to be serious and you're just like, what are you doing? Like, you've just completely and utterly destroyed what could have been like a half, you know, an all right scene. And you've just kind of made it gimmicky. And and this is where I'm like, well, what have we got? We've got a Joss Whedon script. And I wrote in my notes, and I messaged you all before as well, and I put postmodernism. I am not a big fan. I'm not a big fan of, like, uh, a Deadpool where we are in a genre and we're going to send that genre up within the film but also try and make it the best version of that genre like the the best ones are your naked guns your airplanes ones where you're 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 not attached to a franchise as such but but this film tries to be winking and knowing and and me and matt said it feels a bit smug and for what is strange what's strange to me is you listen to joss whedon in the interviews and he talks about what a fan he is of the alien franchise and when i watch the film why is it then that I feel like it's being super disrespectful to the franchise? Because I'm watching it and I'm going, well, I'm sorry, but you've just reduced uh, these aliens to, to basically gremlins. Uh, he said it was misinterpreted, but I don't see how it could be uh, in its in its execution. How do you misinterpret to that degree? Well, I, I'll i take us back to another review. And I read in a Den Geek interview with, Matt, uh, with Weed and they, he said they got it wrong. They completely got it wrong. And he wasn't very happy with how... It was translated on screen from Jeanette. Now, when we did Taken, we spoke about some really clumsy dialogue and all of this here and there. And we spoke about the possibility of being lost in translation. This is a French director doing an American uh, English language like Hollywood film. And I feel there's a lot of that going on. I feel like if you watch Delicatessen uh, and you see his style, Jeanette, there is that black 
comedy element. There is that uh, comedy cutting through the core of, of human drama or, or whatever. And I is misplaced here, but it's his style. And, and it's what he knows and it's his kind of, um, language, so, so to speak. And with Joss Whedon, if he's trying to put some kind of cool lines in there, it's, I, the, the, I mean, the line, who do I have to fuck to go off the shit? He, he's dreadful. Like God awful. It's, it's dreadful. It's a, it's a thudder, isn't it? It's a and I, I kind of, but I blame, I blame Weaver as much as I blame the director. She should know better. And, and he, you know, it's, if he's thinking it's a cool Hollywood line and it's Joss Whedon, this really cool up and coming writer at the time and Buffy's very popular. I, I, there's all of that that I see in this. I don't know they, if you agree. They, um, they, they all seem to be quite happy to sort of, uh, say that they were guns for hire. So Whedon was like, well, I, brought, I got brought in to write this one thing. And then they were say, and then they said, and now Sigourney Weaver's the star. So I retrofitted it and I retooled it. And then when Janae came in, he's like, and I, I incorporated some of his ideas because he's the director. And then when Janae comes in, he says, the script is written and the studio have greenlit the script. So I make the script. I bring ideas, but you know, he's, he's not going to fight for anything. And what that feels, that feels like you've got a strange thing there where you've got, um, Joss Whedon for, for, you know, for good or ill has a very strong voice. Janae has a very strong visual style and also a tone and they're bringing elements of it, but all of them are also happily do, uh, servicing whatever requests are handed down from the mysterious higher ups at Fox, which is, it's strange to, uh, Sigourney Weaver says that, um, that she didn't feel like it was mercenary because Fox were always willing to invest in interesting young filmmakers, which is kind of true. And, you know, Shane was, was, uh, was not like a kid. He wasn't like a Fincher, but he was still certainly in his Hollywood career. He was, he didn't have one. He was a, uh, an independent French director, but I, I just find that really, a strange, and maybe it just accounts for just how kind of strange and standoffish it all is, which is that you have people aggressively applying certain elements of their filmmaking style, but nobody willing to be the one who's just going to brutally grab hold of the thing. And like, I, I feel like Fincher was that guy that even though he was young, I think he pushed back a lot to try and keep the thing somewhat on rails to the version of the film he had in his head i don't know if anyone had this film in their head he didn't really speak english too well um, sigourney weaver said that Janet was hardly proficient in english and i think it was brad Dourif that said that there was no script at the beginning either they were just passing around storyboards wow. with uh, notations on them so i feel like whedon wrote the script and the tone is dictated there because he can say it's misinterpreted all he likes when we get to the section on sigourney's sass we'll go over some of the lines that came from his pen from his fingertips mm-hmm. yeah. you, know, you, you can't argue that and everyone identifies that with with him right from the get-go and here's the other one matt and patrick you were saying you know is that fair well i'll tell you now there's loads and loads of little bits that really annoy me because the film feels very gimmicky. There's lots of strange kind of weird sci-fi nonsense. But when you pen a scene in an alien film where we are supposed to be dealing with a species that is the perfect organism and you then start showing me that that perfect organism can be best deployed in the NBA. I'm sorry, but we, we've literally jumped the shark here. Like, what yeah. are you doing? Like that to me, that is, that's not a director. There's no way Janae went, I tell you what, 
I really like basketball. I think we're just going to have a scene where Sigourney's doing <laughs> oh, a bit of basketball. That's and, uh, uh, humour, I think. I think that's a misjudged attempt at humour. It is so undermining to, because for whatever, whatever clone number eight, it's not quite Ripley. The fact of the matter is that Sigourney is now a huge star in this franchise and it is very difficult to remove Sigourney Weaver from the Ripley character. So it doesn't matter how many times you tell me that she's not who you think she is. I'm afraid when they keep calling her Ripley, I don't know why, they should just call her Sigourney. Um, number eight. Yeah, yeah, or number eight. I am going to just go, why are you destroying this character that I've absolutely loved throughout the series? Who's been the anchor? Get her in the last dance. She should have been in the Bulls team. Ridiculous. Just to play devil's advocate, though, we spoke about how do you refresh a series or a franchise and Ripley's dead in Alien 3. And if we're honouring that that Ripley's dead, this is this Ripley. The whole point of it is to give her a different vehicle. And that's my problem with the post, with the postmodernism stuff, Patrick. It's the, it's the idea that, okay, well, if we can't do uh we don't want to be derivative although the film i think ends up becoming extremely derivative but you know on surface they they think they're doing something really really unique and actually they're not but you know they've got a few elements that are like well this this is very very different and you know you mentioned it in your um in your opening gambit about you know one of the things that we love about the series is that you know we have a horror film then we have an action sci-fi film um, then we have a third one, which is very human drama, post-apocalyptic, you know, Catholicism, etc. And this fourth one is, like you say, a dark comedy, kind of absurdist comedy. But unfortunately, that instinct, I mean, at every level, someone should have gone, oh, you know what? This is going to, and in fact, they did, because um, that very producer that Devlin said, says in the an interview, you're going to kill the franchise with this. This is where you, you can't help but think like this is this is baked in from the start. Get David Geiler read it and he was kind of on the money where he's like, you're not coming back from this. You're not going to be, you're not going to be able to, to put the, not that you probably can on a fourth film, but um, the thing is not like Wes Craven's new nightmare. It's not like at any point there was silliness in the, in the films. You know, the second one probably came closest and it really didn't. It's, it's only, I only say that just because it's the one that kind of, uh, is the one that's, that's most comfortable with, with being like, you know, uh, that there are kind of some snappy one-liners and there are action sequences, but it's all played super, super straight. I think, uh, Gally, you were saying like, has this ever worked? Has it ever worked to kind of go postmodern and to try and regenerate a franchise through kind of, ironically reinterpreting it and i just I, I i couldn't think of an example where that's that's ever worked the only time i've ever seen uh, a sequel go so meta would be gremlins 2 where they, where <laughs> yeah. that was joe dante literally intentionally detonating it so they would never be able to make another one i, I we keep saying postmodern, and i keep thinking of the simpsons <laughs> Mo's like weird weird for the sake of weird <laughs> <laughs> i didn't really find the the postmodern thing uh an issue until you pointed it out. I I quite superficially always saw it as just a heavy lean towards humor and maybe it was just misjudged. But thinking more about it, I think you're right. And this whole kind of, this thing can be a, applied across the board to a lot of horror antagonists like Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees, where the, the threat and the suspense has all been, uh, uh, just completely destroyed in favor of creating a pop culture that's the figure. one, Matt, because I was thinking it's more trying to make it more family friendly, this film, and I thought that was the problem. And make more money. Uh, it, we can, we can say things like family friendly and, and it's true, but the, the bottom line here is money. The only reason this film is made is to make more dosh. 
and merch and toy manufacturing and turning nightmares into little plastic figures. And I, I also think like De- Devlin talked on aliens as far back as that, that there was fatigue as far as the xenomorphs and the creature losing its power. It was kind of getting, um, you know, destroyed far too easily within the movies. And then it's been spoofed and parodied in things like uh, Spaceballs. So at, at this point it has become, and, and even Ripley too, that it's, it, she's become a, a pop culture figure. Uh, and so I don't know where the intentions are, are coming from. Is it just spinning it in a new direction at any cost? Yeah. Well, that was one of the things again that they mentioned, and we keep talking about the documentaries, but they're so revealing. It means that we don't need to think. Um, but one of, <laughs> one of, one of the things they mention is how like, well, in this one, the aliens have far more character. And I mentioned about gremlins. Yeah. The bit where they escape, there, there is a, there is a throwaway line, um, in aliens, uh, where the power gets cut and Hudson says, Oh no, I think Ripley says they must have cut the power. And Ed Hudson says, how can they cut the power? They're animals. We never see it. I don't want to see alien number one speak to alien number two and <laughs> yeah. say, can you just make sure you get rid of that circuitry there? It needs to go. Are you picturing and, them like yanking out the cables yeah. like gremlins? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and in this the traffic one, lights. in this one, it's, it's like, it's like they've gone, well, let's just get the way that animals sometimes like snarl and sneer and talk to each other. I was, I was just, I was just getting really, really irritated. I don't by mind it. I that like, bit, Gunny. I don't, I don't. And, and I'd say, we, we have already set up there. They are very intelligent. They, they, um, they have an understanding. Is it, is it aliens where Ripley has the flamethrower and she threatens and they back off? Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. We've, we've seen that. it. We've yeah. seen it before. And in here, I actually quite like this as an escape and, and kind of an idea that these are, you said it yourself, the perfect organism and to, I don't mind that bit at all. But I get that more. I, I get that kind of, uh, you know, recoiling naturally, especially from fire, which is just, you know, it's kind of what a really fun thing that anything would, would, would recoil from. But I think I, I, what Gally's saying about them having a little chat and then yeah. one of them telling they're, the other animals. that he's going to do his guts in so they can melt through the floor. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> they have a level of self-awareness to know that their acid is made of blood and that they would mm. be able to use that to mm. get more. I, 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 and Patrick, I have, I have another one. I have another one because the, this script is <laughs> fucking so bad. There is the, so the, the bit, uh, the bit on Twitter that everyone kept mentioning was the underwater sequence, which in isolation, not only technically is that extremely difficult to do. Uh, so I applaud all the technicians that managed to shoot that sequence because that must have been a nightmare. But let's stick to the story and let's stick to the script. <laughs> they come, they come out of the, um, out of a hole. And then I think it's Ron Pillman's like, it's a fucking ambush. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're, so you're now ex- trying to tell me that the aliens have set, uh, turned off the air cooling. <laughs> so they knew that they were going to go this way because they know the, the layout of the ship. Um, they flooded it so that then they can have two of them chase them and then they're going to corner them and then surround it in eggs. And I was just like, this yeah, but is... Gally, Gally, you're missing the worst problem with all of that. Right. And the worst problem with all of that is at the end of the film, we say that the queen has got human reproductive systems. There's no need for eggs. Yet we have eggs. I, and and how well, did those eggs get there? Like, did you, and don't get me wrong. I'm not one of those nitpickers. Do you know, please no, do not. How the fuck did those eggs get there? But, but this is the, this is the way that the script and the film made me feel, which is okay. So I've got, um, I've got possible NBA talent 
within the blood. <laughs> so that's fine. Got that. <laughs> then we've got that they they you know they know the layout of the ship. Yeah, but basketball's the uh, the the national sport on um, LV forty six. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but these are the kind of thing. And, and in a film where I'm engaged and I enjoy the characters and I'm I'm and I'm I'm like you know suspense and sweaty palms i don't think about these things but the problem with this film is i've got nothing but time to think about these things because everything that's on screen is just you know Jeanne's visual flair is exciting but it really does wear thin when there's really nothing to grab hold of because everything feels so off so i'm just kind of like well nothing tracks when you were saying about like uh, having just nothing but time to think about things um during the film, I didn't really think about this so much because um, I was actually like just super bummed out and a bit bored. <laughs> so I kind of, my brain switched off a little bit, but I was talking to Gally like the day after I watched it. And um, this this thing just kind of came in, which is like the basic premise of the film from its, from its very concept doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever either, which is that, uh, as you were saying in your very concise uh, uh, summation, Patrick, that Wayland Utani is gone and it's been replaced by United Military Systems or whatever, and it's been two hundred years, but we have absolutely no concept of what's happened in two hundred years. And when they're talking about Wayland, um, I think Ripley or Number Eight says to somebody about the company, and uh the 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 two guys are chatting away the two kind of comedy scientists and one of them says like what is ancient history this is but they they seem to have simultaneously absolutely no conception of what this Wayland yutani thing was but also they are one of the very few people in the entire universe who are working on a thing which is from you would imagine the most significant period in the history of this company and it's and what have they been doing in 200 years? Have they <laughs> yeah, been, yeah. It's only number eight. And we've seen number seven still alive. So they've probably only been doing this. Where the fuck did they get the blood from? It's, oh, it's, well, from Fury 16, which again is infuriating. It was like, it's definitely 161. But I mean, that's just, again, it's a nitpick, but it's kind of like, it's emblematic of what's wrong and what Devlin's referring to, which is if you're going to will build, then do it properly. Like don't just throw stuff out there for for sake of it. We've had some interesting world building and it's always been hinted at. It's always been in the background. It's always been just kind of around, which is great. Um, and then this time they, they it's hand waved away. And I just find that very annoying because mm-hmm. I don't see if don't do it if you can't even vaguely justify. It. But then a problem you have with when you get so far down in the in the in the film series when you've got so much canonical backstory to keep in your head is that you end up just having to apologize or make excuses for everything you think of doing because it's already contradicting something that happened elsewhere. Mm. So once, well, we, once again, we come back to Matt's idea, which is like, just don't make it. Everyone in the company will die. In the, in the in the company, Wayland, Utani, Ripley Eight's former employers, Terran Growth Conglomerate. They had defense contracts under the military, or oh, they went under decades ago. Get them in way before your time. Bought out by Walmart. Fortunes of war. I think you will find that uh, things have changed a great deal since your time. I doubt that. We're not flying blind here, you know. It's the United Systems military, not some greedy corporation. Oh. Well, it won't make any difference. You're still gonna die. 
one of the things that I couldn't understand is, okay, if you're going to replace Whaling Utani with United Systems, whatever, don't make them the same thing. Like, so when there's a, there's a throwaway line by the lead scientist who I assume is our big bad, which is another problem with the film, which is, who is the big bad? Mm-hmm. We don't really know. But anyway, he says something like, um, oh, um, you know, it's a perfect creature. Think of the vaccines and the, and I'm thinking, okay, that's good. That's different. This isn't for biological weapons. This is actually, and I thought, well, there is a jumping off point to something that's different. Maybe the big bads actually have got really pure intentions and, and that would be interesting. They don't do that. I guess also when you mentioned, um, Gilliam, yeah, that was the thing that came up to me as well, which is that, uh, I'm kind of used to seeing films whereby nobody is the straight man and everything's chaotic and every performance is amped up. Uh, and this is kind of what's happening here, right? This is like everybody's nuts and shouting <laughs> and, and everything's weird. And Dan Hedaya is weird, super weird. He's chomping on a lemon. His death when he goes cross-eyed, I was like, oh my God, we are in, we're in National Lampoon's territory here. Like, what are we doing? I think what happened was that was, on paper, it, it all worked. Uh, the boxes for characters in this film were superficially ticked. And a, a theory that I had was that it was, the film was designed completely visually, uh, like little to no English on Janae's part. Like we said, the actors were given storyboards, not a script at first. Uh, I think this would make a decent graphic novel, but the, it's that translation to the screen that kind of hindered it. And, uh, so you end up with kind of caricatures, but on, you can imagine it on paper working like Dan Hedaya with, with, he's mad that she's got memories. And I'm not too sure why he's playing it. Like he's coked up. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's that breath identification bit was quite funny. Uh, he's got very hairy shoulders. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it, I wanted to mention that because what, what do you, what do you do for shoulder hair? I mean, I used to have like one or two and you just pluck them out, but no, <laughs> it, it's, it's getting, that? It's getting to a degree where I can't, I can't pluck them all. So what am I supposed to do? Oh, with that? We I don't have want to gone on a like tangent a... here, haven't we? We've gone on a surrealist writhing amongst the alien tales. So. <laughs> yeah. It, it's all kind of werewolf Robin Williams territory. So I, I don't know what he's supposed to do with them, but I found that bizarre. That, that you, character. Your face looks like Robin Williams knuckles. <laughs> this, this could have been a fantastic graphic novel. Because the way that Jeanne shoots it, it's like splash pages in a comic book. You know, you can see mm-hmm. there are there are compositions, and it's mainly with the deaths. So I'm thinking about like when Ripley shoots the alien through Guy Gisborne's chest with a spoon. Um, <laughs> you know, that that one. Um, you've got down. the his um, his girlfriend, or the again, I don't even know a name. But when she gets pulled underwater, there's a shot with the Hill- bubbles, Hillard. and it goes. Yeah. yeah, and I thought, yep, that would make a great shot, a great bit of visual yeah, art yeah. in a comic book. Yeah, but it, it means nothing if you're not invested in any of these people. Well, funnily enough, I'm more interested in um, is it uh, Brian Brian Mills's mate when he when he um his his character I latched onto really well this morning. And he's the scared, like, scientist. And that, that seems quite striking to me when he's like, what's inside me? What's inside me? I think that's done really well. And, and his fear. And I'm actually quite attached to him when he dies at the end because. Oh, Leland um, Orser. Yeah, yeah. Really? I oh, am. Yeah. 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 But, but, but to say of anyone else, I'm, I'm not really into any other character apart from his. I, he's, I think he's dreadful in everything. I, I really don't like him. He's one of my least favorite actors. What? Even in, even in Taken when he's got those pierce masks. Brian, Brian Come on. Mills, like, Brian even in like. Seven and Seven's a perfect film. And even in that, he annoys me. I do really like him in The Guest. I don't know if you've seen it. Do you know, do you know well, who he's married to? No. Oh, no. 
Um, Gene Triplehorn from Basic Instinct and oh, Waterworld. Wow. Yeah. Jesus. Lucky devil. Well done, Leland. Um, no, I didn't get attached to him, Patrick, because unfortunately, I, peeking behind the curtain, I knew that he was literally there for one ghastly death. Great death, though. Like, fucking great death. A great death in concept. Again, like, if me and you were in the pub and we were like, I'll tell you what would be really great, just chest bursting someone through the skull. No, it's brilliant. It's no, brilliant. no, but it isn't, though. It adds, it, it doesn't because I, I didn't feel any weight to it then. I was just like, yeah, that just happened. I don't know whether I felt any weight then, fine, but I felt like I was like, yeah, that's fucking ace, like having fun with it. And I think the film wants us to have fun with it a lot more than anything else, which is a shame because we spoke about Alien 3 not scaring us. And, and a fundamental thing of an alien film is you've got to have the fear and the scares and it doesn't. But I had fun with that death a lot. I think it was the, the CG of that moment was, was a problem because I've, I've got this thing where whenever the camera goes somewhere that the audience knows on some level that the camera cannot go, that that takes you out. I mean, I, I watched Fight Club the other day and the opening scene of Fight Club, it's the the, the uh, opening titles are going through the body and it comes out of a sweat pour and along the gun and everything. And it's like, we, we know that a camera can't do that. So on some level, we're removed from it. And we know that a camera can't go down a guy's throat and get a shot of a, a chest burster before it comes out too. It, so was, it, was, it was the absolute rave though. I, I remember it in Gone in 60 Seconds when it goes through the exhaust and you're just like, oh. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, Sam Raimi can, can really do it by shoving a, you know, ramming a camera through a car and it's the, the greatest thing in the world. But as soon as you involve a computer, I'm just, I'm out. You know. <laughs> yeah, Matt, I'm going to go back to, you know, you said, where else would you go with this? Well, the film kind of feels like an alien half-breed of a zombie film because when they keep, and again, not making sense and me getting angry with things not making sense, they all say, oh, um, this guy's got an alien inside of him. Oh, it's, uh, well, you know, we're going to have to just kill him then. And then someone just says, can you not do something about it? Yeah, but not not here, though. It's got to be in the lab. Oh, well, come with us then, mate. Come on. Come on. It's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know that it's just, it, it, it defies logic when number eight is there who knows everything about the aliens, but somehow lets that fly. Like, yeah, yeah, they can just get rid of it now. It's simple, really easy uh, procedure. Also, it's, uh, I think it's Winona, a call, who says it, right? And she says, like, no, he's coming with us. We have to get him. And then they drag him along for the whole journey. But then she gets uh, sudden and inevitable betrayed and gets shot by the doctor. And then the, mm. the, the doctor's off. He's off, uh, escaped into the ship. But they are yeah. continuing to take Leland also with them, knowing that they now have literally no uh, prospect of helping him whatsoever because nobody is a medical professional. The, the character who is there to destroy the aliens wants to keep the aliens alive. And I think her line when, when she's talking to Sigourney about, um, you know, being disgusted with who she is, she's like, it's in my programming to care. It's like, that's not enough. Like, and if it is, then explore that, but don't just have a throwaway line that just explains why the character is completely contradictory in one scene to another. Cause that was my big problem with Sigourney. Can we, I feel like we've waxed her car and that leather suit quite a bit. But can we talk about Sigourney in this film? Because I, I, she's dreadful, in my opinion. She's really all over the show. Nothing at all tracks. She does a golden eye, uh, Xenia on a top, uh, sort of thigh grab on that dude. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's very Ripley, is it? Uh, and I think, where does she get this sass? Like, well, um, is it is it the animal insider because of the cross contamination with, with the alien genetics? But even if it is, like, why is it coming out in like uh, that she's sex people now? 
Well, yeah. but especially someone who didn't have a grasp on language at the beginning of the film is then saying, who do I have to fuck to get off this ship? It, it doesn't I work. Think the, it's like that um, meets back on the menu line that they always talk about. <laughs> like that, that, that <laughs> so many more questions, which is that this, you know, or, like an orc that's been grown from the mud and has only been alive for about an hour knows the... It's Joss Whedon. Knows the it's a, like, um, I thought you were dead. Yeah, I get that a lot. That's a John yeah. McClane line. Right. It doesn't belong in here. She's not and she's jaded because she's literally a few weeks, maybe months old at most. Do you remember we spoke about this, this scene in Alien 3 when she says, um, uh, I've known you so long, I, I can't remember anything else about the alien. Yeah. And she fucking hits that pipe that's obviously not an alien. <laughs> and that really fucked me off. It, it, I, I always felt like, and this is plagiarism, which I probably shouldn't say, but that Sigourney had been writing her own lines and thinking they were cool. And I wondered if there was any of that in here and Sigourney as a producer trying to do things for Ripley and go down that different route that I, I agree with the galley doesn't do Ripley any justice really, but for a performance thing, she's trying to do something here and she, it's, you know, Sigourney Weaver just strutting around the place. Um, it could be true. I, I just, I think we have to blame Whedon because he's credited. So li- lines like, uh, you've ran into these things before. What did you do? I just think I she'd died. have had more control over it. And, and, well, that's the bit I can't get my head around, Patrick, because in, in the interviews for Resurrection, she mentions that the reason she's doing it is because she's heard rumors of this god awful alien versus predator film. And you think, okay, that's, if you want to, you know, that's for the birds if you think that that's her only reason. I'd imagine How about the 11 million? Is that a reason? 11 million other reasons why she probably did the film. But then when you're on board with the film and you are the, you know, you are the iconic character and you're a producer, so you're, you're given carte blanche, I would have thought she would have tried to protect the franchise a bit more. Yeah. Like, she mm. must have known that this is, like, going to sink it. And is this it's just a, zero... a paycheck for them? Is this what it is? Well, it, it is. I mean, and, and one thing I haven't mentioned, which I think is important, um, but I do think it's a zero sum game is that let's be fair. She's 48 years old, female starring in a action franchise summer blockbuster. That doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. It depressingly is very, very rare. So she should be championed for the fact that she has got to that level and okay, on her own fine. steam. And, and, you know, so that, that has to be pointed out, but then it's a zero sum game. If the film is shit, because it just means that someone will go, you know, some studio exec will go, well, did you see Alien Resurrection? I don't think so. Like, yeah. you know, do you know what I mean? Like, she, I don't understand why she didn't think, well, I'm 48 years old and I'm in an action franchise. I want to make this the best possible film. I mean, maybe she did. Maybe she thought this would, was the best version of, of Alien Resurrection. Well, also, she got to have sex with the alien and she had that relationship with the aliens as well. Maybe she wanted to explore all of that. Yeah, I think she she thinks she's being, you know, smart with it but the fork fuck exchange you know she sat there and said that she thought that was a good idea you know and i i believe that she could have objected if she wanted to she could have vetoed that and and who who do you have to fuck to get off this boat and all of that stuff it makes no sense but maybe it's okay because it's not really ripley maybe that's how she excuses well that's how they that's how they excuse it i mean we we did species not that long ago and i mean this might sound sacrilegious but species did it better because at least they showed you how Sill learnt certain behaviours. In this, it's just, well, it's Ripley, isn't it? You know? Alfred Molina might have helped in this, actually. <laughs> There's a lot of hyper-sexualised things in this, isn't there? Though? Like the deliberateness about when they find out Call is a, is AI. 
and say, I can't yeah. believe I wanted to fuck a robot. And then the, the unnecessary scene with Hillard's arse out with, uh, Guy of Gisborne. Best uh, scene, that. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Fuck's sake. Um, sorry, sorry. And, the, and there's quite a few lines in there that are objectification that, I don't know, just don't sit in an alien film, do they, really? Sorry, the, the thing I wanted to say that I couldn't find was that Alien 3 felt like a funeral to me. Like the whole right. thing was a funeral for Ripley that was mm. decided by the studio, by Sigourney herself. And you, you're killing off this character and knowing that it's the last one. And it kind of works as a neat trilogy and a nice bookend. That's why Finch's one harks back to the original and not so much Cameron's stuff. Yeah. But yeah, so I found that very unusual that she came back and then she kind of got walked over as far as what they made her do. Uh, but, but then in a strange way, it's like when you, I, I guess if this is an autopsy and the, and the, um, it's, we're, we're trying to apportion blame and it seems that perhaps it was just the fact that everyone just went really hands off which is odd because everyone seems to want to claim that they had ideas but so you know Sigourney seemed well on board with this interpretation even wrote it Genet filmed it the studio released it Genet uh, uh, on his introduction to his special edition kind of says the same thing that um, uh, Ridley Scott does which is um Honestly, don't even bother watching this, to be honest, because the the, the, the theatrical cut is what I wanted to make, and I, I don't have anything to add to that. Do you not think those directors' introductions on the quadrilogy are a little bit like hostage videos? Yeah, a little. Where <laughs> he's like, uh, honestly, I made the one I wanted to the first time. Yeah, and they're, they're, they're making me do this. You know? uh, the only one that doesn't is Cameron when he's like, you know, it's a it's like a forty miles of bad road. Oh, that is you know, a good. It's, it's, it's the intense version that uh, I intended you to. Well, he's have. a salesman, isn't he? He's yeah, good he's a, he is a great salesman. I mean, every Terminator film is the best Terminator film. So yeah, he does yeah. he does a good job at doing that. Um, can we can we talk about another major cast member? I know Guy Gisborne, Michael Wincott is a legend, but Winona Ryder, who. Um, Patrick, you said Edward Scissorhands. I agree. Um, absolutely adore her. I have not seen, or I couldn't recall, a, a as bad a performance. Uh, and the only one I could think of was, um, and, and when I say bad performance, I mean uh, the way it made me feel, which is that someone's just in dress up. Uh, it reminded me of Amelia Clark in Terminator Genesis, trying to be Sarah Connor. Where it's like, yep, you've got the haircut. You. What did you call her? You called her rubbish, small Sarah Connor or something in that. In that. Oh yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it is outrageous. Um, the the Bugs Bunny routine when she's getting changed as well is outrageous too. Um, you can see it in the shadow. But no, um, I, and to me, Winona just feels like she's in dress up, and the, the the sets are swarming her as well. Like she feels warped in this. And when she's saying lines, I think she says something like. They grew in a lab, man. I'm like, Winona mm. Ryder, this is just, just none of this sounds real at all. Just, and when it she, feels when she a bit sw- one dimensional. Yeah. When she yeah. swears as well, it's like, this, I know that I'm projecting slightly, you know, Winona Ryder, the, you know, America's sweet, uh, you know, princess until she starts robbing things. But, but this, <laughs> she is, she is not good in this at all. Well, I don't know what you thought, but I was, it's strange that when she's being like a little bit of a, she's a, she's the kooky outsider. So you've got, uh, Heathers, which is brilliant in, and yeah. you've got Edward Scissorhands, which is really moving. And, uh, uh two years later, it's uh girl interrupted as well. That she's yeah, very Also fantastic. But because everyone here is just fucking weird, everyone's so weird. She doesn't have, uh, she can't work up the Beetlejuice outsider thing. 
because she, it's difficult to be an outsider when uh, a guy is, you know, uh, Dominique uh, Pignon, is his name right? Um, who is, is that his name? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, who is, uh, you know, a, a fine physical actor and he, he, you don't want to go down this road because it it's, could just end up being very farage, but um, you, you can't really tell what he's saying in the film. And he seems to be blinking a lot and shouting. So, a shooter. Um, and, uh, uh, and, oh, uh, no. and Perlman is off the, off the chain. He's doing monkey noises from the first time you see him. Perlman. Perlman's character is all over the shop, isn't it? it really and like is. I, I said, my, my first encounter is like my dad's a big fan. Like we, we went to see the Hellboy films together because of Ron Perlman. And, I I look look back very fondly about Ron Perlman in this film and thinking he was a fucking badass and a great character. And I watched it this week and I thought, what the fuck is going on? Again, it, Patrick, I have to look at the scripts and the execution. They're all, there's no synergy because Perlman's character is supposed to be like Jonah, isn't it? It's Jonah. He's supposed to be, you know, just basically the the brash dick. And then through no they've had no virtually no interaction whatsoever apart from when he says um how did you deal with these before and she says oh i died when ripley comes back from her little sex pit he's like hey <laughs> ripley's back yeah yeah hey sigourney's back like what the fuck mm. like that, that does not track yeah whatsoever completely agree it just it threw me for, for six and then there's there's another bit as well um because I went on the Twitter, people were saying like they enjoyed the characters, they enjoyed how fun it was, they enjoyed the action sequences. And again, like for in isolation, if it's not aliens, you know, the way it's shot and, you know, out of the context of the story, fine. It's all technically done well. But then I'm just having like loads of logic moments where I'm just thinking, well, okay, so they're on this big ladder and that your mate is hanging with another guy hanging off his back and they're hanging there for a long, long time. Why is no one just going down to just help them up? Like, just, and I know that that sounds really Cause silly. Cause it's not cool, Gunny. What's cool is him marching back and shooting. Yeah, but it takes him like 10 minutes to do that. Yeah. And then, and then when he cuts in, when, maybe when, he couldn't um, understand what uh, that fellow was saying. <laughs> what this guy was saying. But when oh, the guy, no. when the guy has the, um, has the moment where he self sacrifices himself, I'm like, I don't understand why he's doing that. He's got a, you know, okay, he's going to be disfigured for the rest of his life. But is he dying or is he just doing it because he's like, well... Because yeah, he could have survived the fall. It's a dead alien. Yeah, <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any fucking sense. No, I was, I was very much channeling my Brian Cox adaptation. Why are you wasting my bloody time? Um, so yeah, it was, it was, again, I feel like I'm, I'm being uber negative, but I'm struggling the whole way through to like grasp onto something. The Dominic Pignon, uh, role and the Winona role are really the only two opportunities to create a, a goodie. Uh, I, I latched on to the two of them as far as being the good guys because there's, there's no one really to, to root for in this film. Um, since uh, just i just want to wax winona's car a little bit uh so to speak the uh since stranger things i've i haven't really gone back to any winona roles so this is the first film i've actually seen her in since watching all, all the stranger things that she that she did and uh yeah i found i found that she's very expressive and her eyes are you know incredible but I have to agree, Gally, it's not, it's not a terrific role, but as someone with just a semblance of good to her, you kind of, 
you kind of relate to her in, in a in a certain way. Maybe because there's no one else to really latch on to. We, we needed all. we needed Charles dance, didn't we? Oh yeah, more dance. And apparently, what everyone was talking about in the script that was what they thought was was the focus. And I find that really interesting. That you know, people would think that that's that's the hook, right? Like this is the reason we want to make this film. And so Whedon and uh, Weaver agreed with him. Whedon, Whedon, Whedon. <laughs> said that it's about. Where do her loyalties lie? What is she? Be she human? Be she inhuman? <laughs> and uh, uh, I didn't get that at all. And also, they're supposed to be echoing that with the 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 call plot, but it just gets fumbled out. And and I don't think that it was. What's weird is that Whedon did a a similar uh, thing to greater success in like a later series of Angel. I think the last series of Angel, where he had the character of Fred, who's like a beloved kind of character. And she gets taken over by a demon called Ilaria, and you have to reckon with um, uh, you know, a, a beloved character that you've grown up with, or at least spent some time with and enjoyed, becoming something else, and the the ramifications of that. But because Ripley keeps being ripped out of time and placed with a new group of people, um, that also doesn't really land because it affects the way that all the other characters interact with her but i think gally you mentioned this and we've all kind of said it which is that why do they react to ripley the way they do would ripley be a big deal to people 200 years in the future it's like she seems to be a legend but also that nobody knows who she is and it's very confusing but what um what you i guess what you're saying about like when you undercut a character that you've spent three films creating a, 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 a good narrative arc for, and then you completely undercut it and create this new character, which is somewhat her and somewhat not her. They just haven't done the heavy lifting, uh, the lifting needed for the audience to, to give a shit, right? Like, it doesn't feel like it's, it doesn't feel sad that she's not Ripley, which is weird because like Matt, the, the three was a funeral for Ripley. So four should feel like an, like an invasion, like an intrusion, like, like this, uh, uh, un, like somehow uncomfortable to watch. She should, she should have expressed being wronged. But I suppose then just to lead you into that devil, into the cloning, the, the clones scene where she enters the room where there's seven of them. I suppose that's the only tangential kind of link to that and attempt at. It's the best scene in the, in the film for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that scene where she goes in to the clone reject bin or as I, as I've called it, the, the freak show, which is a, <laughs> which is an Independence Day reference. Sorry. Uh, there's, there's like a Kate Bush one and there's a little goblin one and it's, it's a very hairy one. And, uh, it's very, I, I thought one of the hairy ones when I watched it the other day, I thought, oh, was that supposed to be Newt? Um, you know, oh. like when you meet Newt and the hairs beyond her eyes. But I've, I'm just I've checking, guys. We're still talking about the clones. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I never forgot that scene. And I, I think the contorted one with Sigourney's actual face and sort of puppet boobs, yeah. that that's kind of the representative of, of what this film has done to Ripley and the <laughs> franchise. It, it, it's tried to clone it and failed many times over. It's deformed her. And what we're looking at in the form of Ripley 7 is more akin to the real Ripley than what we ended up with with 8. Right, okay, yeah. And I, I think it's like it's representative of Sigourney's conscience too and the lack of integrity, this <laughs> twisted, <laughs> twisted, horrible thing that just wants to die. She's been telling us on the commentaries and on the making ofs, I've been trying to die for several movies now. Will you just let me let me go? 
but then she brings herself back. So, you know, I, I, you can't blame them entirely. It's also the best scene, Matt, because I think it's the one where Jeanne and Whedon's synergy is, is probably at its best because it's, it's the button that they end the scene on is a joke that feels like the right joke, which is what a waste of, I think Pillman says like, must be what a, a fucking wa- waste of ammunition must be a chick thing. You know, it's not a, oh, a belly laugh. It's just a, yeah, we'll button that scene because that was pretty traumatic. And Janae doesn't laden it with kind of, sort of absurdity it's played straight and ripley uh oh, sorry sigourney is is extremely expressive and it's the only time where i feel like she's somewhat humane the rest of the time it's sass and a bit of and a bit of you yeah. know a little bit of sexy animalistic sniffing whereas at least in, in that one you know she's playing it um emotionally and i'm invested in it because i'm seeing the ripley that i've loved for you know several moves don't do it ripley Don't do what? What's the big deal, man? Fucking waste of ammo. Let's go. Must be a chick thing. Newborn? Yeah, let's talk newborn. Um, a, a, fasc- a fascinating creature, I suppose. Um, you know, we've seen this in the Jurassic Parks. Sometimes yeah. when you've seen something so many times, you must do something bigger. I hate that. When they kill off the T-Rex, they say the, the Spinosaurus or the Gigantosaurus or whatever we're on now kills off the T-Rex. Yeah. It's like, it's like killing the Queen. It's the same thing. And it's also like killing um, these two icons of um, animatronic puppetry as well. Yeah. They're the last two great creatures and they're being killed off by, in this case, not CG in Jurassic world, dreadful CG. And it's like that the, you have to usher in something new and you have to top the previous creature. Yeah. Here you've got Giga's designs that are the, it's the greatest creature since the universal monsters. And it's not enough for you. You you have to create something, something else. I actually quite like the the design of it. I think the and and also I think they shoot it well. There's some really great sequences. Uh, and the, when he's stowed away in the in the end fight before he gets sucked off. Um, hey, uh, <laughs> uh, hey, Leonardo. Uh, uh, the, there's he has the you know the the kind of top light. And those big uh, eye sockets are yeah, sunk yeah. back in this, these tiny pinprick lights. Uh, it, well, I, I noticed in the making of that it actually looks like Sigourney. Um, yeah. Sigourney has like, – her eyes have kind of gone slightly in as she got older and her cheekbones have kind of got larger. And I think they've definitely based it yeah. partly on her. And there's this um, – uh, uh, I guess the strobe goes off and it lights mm. the inside of the eye sockets for a second like a little lightning strike. It's like a universal monsters thing in a way. It's, it's a real kind of, um, just highlights it for a second character before, but it's, it's a really great shot. Um, it's interesting Devlin that you say that you thought that it was covered well, because originally, um, Jeanet, uh, wanted the, wanted it to, to be both sexes. So it had a penis within a vagina and I'm being serious here. I've seen the 
conceptual art in the that making of that we keep have saying you know. that you should buy. I have, yeah. <laughs> that, uh, did you clear your history after? Yeah. yeah, I did. Yeah, and they and they shot it. Um, and then when it came down to the editing, I think he went, yeah, probably a bit much. So they removed it digitally, <laughs> which is why which is why some of the coverage is a lot of um, close ups of head and arms, and it sometimes looks like it's slightly encumbersome the way that it moves so it was interesting that you say that because obviously they had to shoot around the fact that they'd given it mixed genitalia but i think that there were certain sequences where i thought that they'd actually shot the thing quite nicely and it was mm. it was a, a, yeah. a, a really impressive animatronic really the, the, the eyes and the expression devlin really yeah again I, maybe i'm so checked out by that point in the film that i'm not quite sure what to make of it all i think it comes a bit late yes do, do you know what whedon wrote about uh, said about the um the design of the <laughs> of the newborn he's like i said I, I just gave him dialogue and stuff but i don't remember writing a withered granny looking pumpkin head kind of thing makes out with ripley yeah well that's better than anything he did so he can shut up <laughs> the design of the hybrid is is really fantastic i think and it echoes uh, a carlo rambaldi one he was the guy that brought in to do the tongue tongue punch for lack of a better word uh and it, it's kind of more skeletal and i don't think they went with it for the first one that it, it, it's in some of the behind the scenes and it's quite skeletal, uh, these cheekbones and sul- sunken eyes. But I, I think the performance of it is great. It's got that childlike behavior and it's terrifying. And like, we always say gooey, uh, when it just rakes the, the queen's jaw off. Uh, and, and that, and that's the, that's the postnatal depression-y stuff. Yeah. And, and also you're attacking your direct lineage. So there's a, there is a little kind of who birthed you, you and and I guess that tracks with cool because it's like robots made from robots, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. they don't like to be told what to do. Yeah. So all yeah, of that stuff kind of does it's it's peppered in, but again, it just adds up to zero because the film doesn't take any time exploring it. It's just, I mean, literally that newborn. Once you see it for a few minutes, next thing you know, like you say, it's getting sucked off. I mean, sucked out. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think the the way it dies. um it's, oh, it's, it's horrific. pretty cool, actually. It's, it's terrific. It's guts fall out and they fall mm, back in. Yeah. And its skull all collapses and then comes back together. Uh, in um, an original script, Matt, uh, that was supposed to be Dan Hedaya's character. Mm. The, the oh. even, even before that, they'd written it as a, uh, a bit of a gag death for some anonymous soldier. And they were like, that's actually really fun. Well, I wrote that as an example of the humor. Like, it's disgusting and funny, but that would not be in any of the other films in that way. Like, Fincher would never do that. No. Um, I mean, if you, you, the same thing happens in Alien, um, basically with the harpoon and everything like that, but it's done yeah. without, without, you know, the grotesque. There's no sense of, um, tragedy at all, ever, at any point, except for maybe when we're talking about the, 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 the clone room sequence, which does have like a, just a kind of desperate, you know, but outside of that, and, and it's a, it's a series that has had that throughout, like, you were saying that it's you know there is this sort of generational trauma theme that has come all the way through it surrogate parents uh, uh the idea the whole thing is based around gestation and birth and the traumas of that and but because nobody takes anything seriously and nobody invests anything with any kind of tragedy it it just maybe that's why it just doesn't stick it has a sort of plasticity to it i totally agree mate and it's the same with the kind of almost i mean i wrote again this is the mood i was in i was like oh i see they've gone army of darkness with the ending because i was just like well so what is this about yeah they slept too long what is this about because and you know i mentioned before about um 
about no peril. Well, there's the other one. Mm. There's no stakes. So when they say, oh, um, and it's supposed to be like a big, holy shit, they're going to earth. Well, don't undercut it by saying, oh, what a shithole. It's rubbish. Well, what's the point yeah. then? You may as well, may as well also, just How many people died when the ship landed in whatever country it was? Well, it was Paris if you've watched the director's cut. But, but again, that ending feels like so, they, you can tell they were just scrambling around for how do we conclude this kind of nonsense, perfunctory story to make it seem like there is something more weighty. So when they look at each other and Winona's like, oh, well, what do we do now when their futures are entwined? And you're just like, well, who cares? Like, I, I have no feeling towards call or clone eight sass Ripley. Like, I just don't care at all. And we don't really understand either, because again, because there's been such sort of poor world building, what the consequences of even going back to Earth are. Like, are they going to, yeah. have they got any food? Are we now walking into Warley and Sigourney's going to, be a robot like that's what it feels yeah. like it's just such a non non-ending uh sponsored by uh, uh egg mcmuffins <laughs> can we go to Eric's corner yes let's hear what rog and gene have got to say i don't want to always make it about them but i i always lean towards them for some reason and they've always got youtube videos um they said it's finally run completely out of steam countless shots of monsters jumping up and scaring everybody um why did they bring her back with, or how did they bring her back with personal memories and an embryo inside her Rod, uh, from a single drop of blood? Like Rog really got into the plot issues. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they latched onto Pauline Kael's critique of the first one, calling it a boo movie as things jumping out and scaring you. Uh, they said the monsters are, sorry, the monsters are putting on the same old act. Uh, the alien embryo and the alien they had issues with, uh, they found it laughable. Two hours of teeth and slime and explode, exploding sets. Uh, Siskel felt he had endured the experience and not enjoyed it. And he said to Rog, I hate to hear someone with your intellect talk in depth about a film like this. It was painful. <laughs> and then he said, it was a waste of neurons, which was quite oh God, they, they've, they've, taken, they've literally taken my summary, the bastard. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> scathing, though. That might be the Yeah, moment. really bad. Uh, uh, I mean, they were never... Uh, the, I guess... Um, he didn't even like aliens, though, did he? Yeah, yeah so, it was too, too noisy. I remember him saying it was a bit too loud. <laughs> he, had like a weird, he had a weird thing about anything horror or horror adjacent. Ebert's usually a little more even-handed, even though, you know... And children in peril he doesn't like, so he didn't right. like the new stuff. Um, I don't know. Did anyone like it at the time? I don't remember it doing well kind of across the board. I don't think the critical consensus was was very strong. I'm, I'm also struggling to find, like, uh, modern-day, um, you know, the second-guest crew. That, yeah, that... I, I, I struggled as well, Devlin. I found one, and it was from um, Digital Spy, which... Right had me thinking maybe they're not the best arbiters. <laughs> but um, but they just wrote a, 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 a puff piece. From the time or like a... a no, in, in 2015, it was a puff piece that's titled <laughs> In Defense of Alien Resurrection, the franchise's oh, right. ugly duck. Yeah, it, oh, it's a black sheep, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah, and essentially it's just like, a, you know what? If you go back, there's stuff to mine from this. It's like the stuff to mine from yeah. all films. It doesn't make it any good. It's it's it, like we do our best. We are not that show that, that go in there purposely ready to sharpen our teeth and gnaw at it like Gene Siskel. But my God, 
I really did struggle to find the positives with this one. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I think it was, it, 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 it was a bit of an abortion of a film, I think, uh, keeping the old sexual, uh, reproductive stuff in line with the series. Um, but yeah, what, what, what about you guys? What do you think? Um, should we do it? Should we do our final thoughts? I'll start with you, Patrick, because, um, yeah, you, um, you come to this with probably a more positive spin. So it's better to, it's a shit sandwich, better to start positive, get all the crap in the middle, and then someone might end it with a nice bit of bun at the bottom. So what are your final thoughts on Alien Resurrection? And would you recommend it to our listeners who have been following us throughout? Alien Ardon, um, a gooey sandwich. Uh, <laughs> I, it, I, I do feel like I'm more positive than the three of you. I, I, I think that's a theme throughout our podcast anyway. I try and see the good in films. Um, but I am disappointed in, in this one. Um, I, I had to switch off there, Gally. I had to, I watched it on Thursday. I watched it this morning just before this. And I had that kind of second watch like, okay, I'm just going to switch off and I'm just going to watch it for what it is and fuck everything else about it. You know, if I imagine if I come to this film without having seen any of the alien films as a standalone just to see if I had fun with it. And I actually did, um, in, in large part and throw away things, you know, the creeping sense beneath the surface of Ron Palmer shooting a spider for no fucking reason, <laughs> really <laughs> pissing me off d- during watching it as well. I couldn't escape that, that side of things. Um, and it's a mess. You can, you can tell that it's a rewrite mess. You can tell that there's, Again, lost opportunity, missed opportunity here to, to really tried something and to gone down there. The, whether the artificial intelligence of, of, uh, Cal, Cal and, um, the, uh, uh, postnatal depression, like Gally mentioned as well from Ripley's character. It's not very respectful of Ripley's character. I don't know what Sigourney was really thinking, but she, I mean, she's doing what she does with, apparent uh confidence and i quite oh sorry just very quickly i quite like the costume design on her the leather thing on her on her shoulders with the ripples is very alien-esque which i thought was quite an, an interesting thing um if, if we, we haven't really spoke about favorite scenes i don't know whether you have any but i, I do like um foot massage yeah <laughs> i do like the the leyland brian mills's mate saying well what's inside me and then when he when he kills dr ren at the end i think that, i think that's great the underwater stuff looks amazing and there's the positives like the film looks great it really does the production design's amazing i like all the um practical effects of the alien and the aliens and the newborn and all of that because obviously they watched alien 3 and thought okay we, we can go back to practical effects i know the cgi stuff in there that you can see especially under the water stuff but technically it's quite a feat um recommend it i recommend it on the basis that if you've watched the alien films and you're interested in where it's going yes you should always watch a film to see what what it is and make your own mind up but this doesn't feel like the film i fell in love with in alien and and in aliens uh at all it feels very far removed and it feels like something very different and wanton for a younger audience to be fun and carefree, but uh, it's a mess, really. Um, how about you, Devlin? Um, I, I kind of have to echo your sentiments there, especially the uh, ridiculous sequence where Ron Perlman does shoot a spider. It's indicative of, it's indicative of the sort of madness 
the madness throwing things at the... I I would respect it more if they threw more things at the wall, to be honest. I don't think it was manic, I don't think it was manic enough. They keep talking about it as being like, a, oh, I wanted for a dark comedy and then, you know, uh, we were going to throw all these kind of postmodern elements into it and maybe we were going to shake it up a bit. It's like there are long stretches where they just don't do enough with it and there's just, there's no plot really there's no kind of central story that's kind of compelling and that would be fine if it was just a survival thriller but we've had so many of those and it's not a good one and it's not tense thus you're just kind of along for the ride and it does look great it looks very of its time like very very 90s like late 90s i, I actually know. sorry to interrupt you but i actually see mm-hmm. like the matrix taking some form of like i yeah. from this as well especially when she jumps on the ship at the end there's there's a uh I think there's, you know, the, maybe it was, uh, Kanji's bleach bypass, dark, dark, dark cinematography you came across. Maybe it's the, the, the increased use of, uh, fluoro lights, you know, lots of integrated fluoros and stuff. It was, um, there was, the thing is, it, it's not far from this to get into like cheap televisual nineties slash very early 2000 sci-fi. It doesn't look that far away from fucking Lex or something. Or like Jason X, <laughs> like I don't, you don't have to go too far. So <laughs> it it does show that at the very least, money will 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 I don't know will win out, and that you can uh, uh, you can have a slightly dated aesthetic, but as long as you do so with like talented uh, craftsmen and a lot of money behind you, you can make the thing look nice. But outside of that, I just I don't know. I I would be happy to never see it again. <laughs> um, and I've I feel that considering I came around quite a lot on Alien Three, although I I still have some reservations about it as an overall film, that there's some really really nice stuff in there, and that it at least feels like a fitting sort of tragic conclusion to this thing. I just to to append this just. It's strange little anomaly that nobody seemed to want to be involved in. It just seems like a lot of, it's just a strange thing to put so much time and effort and money into, which is something that nobody really wants to do or take responsibility for. So, uh, it's telling, I think, that nobody wants to be the one to put their hand up and say that they did it. They're all like, ah, I just did what I, I just did what I was told to. And you know what? So did the Nazis. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think that? that's hard to follow uh, <laughs> uh, there's something to be said for departing from the norm and giving the audience something new it's not a stale film it is the antidote to the dour alien 3 but it depends on the person uh, you know as to whether you enjoy that I like the dourness and downbeat bleak nihilism of alien 3 uh, but I do prefer the tone of aliens, like in generally looking at the, the entire series. Um, in a series that prides itself on making each installment unique and bringing a new vision each time with a new director, Resurrection doesn't shirk that. Um, and it, for better or worse, it does bring something new. Uh, however, for me, the problems far outweigh the positives. I'm not a fan of the tone. Researching this, there's a subsect of fans that Gally just touched on it, um, that kind of call it the black sheep of the franchise. But I, I think that's all rose tinted glasses, really. Um, and like you said, you can, you can take anything from any film if you, if you look carefully enough. 
Uh, it's hard to argue the case for this being anything other than the fourth best in the initial series of four. So AKA the worst one. Um, it's not for intellectuals. Alien fans will likely wonder where this monstrosity came from. You, you can argue, I can hear myself complaining and you can argue, lighten up, have fun with it. Like you were saying, Patrick, like just try and switch off and enjoy it. But I'm not okay with a series that is dear to me turning into a farce and people really object to to that. You know, Indy 4 was a big one for me. Crystal Skull angered me beyond belief. Uh, not so much Star Wars because I wasn't really as in, invested when uh, episode one came around. I wasn't a big Star Wars fan. But I understand why people are disgusted by people ruining, so-called ruining their childhoods. Um, I ate my sandwiches a bit early on Alien 3 and said something along the lines of, it's not the second best or the third best, but it's the best of the rest, including Scott stuff. And now I'm rethinking that and I'm going to have to save that for when we get to them. But at the moment, I'm thinking Prometheus and Covenant look pretty good compared to this. Uh, they keep painting themselves into corners and then characters that are at the completion of their arcs and then dragging them, digging up the graves again. Uh, and this is where it shows the most... Um, the, the fucking Planet of the Apes ending <laughs> in Paris doesn't work. It it underwhelms. Uh, but I think it works on paper. If you look at the final image of the movie, that's, again, like it's the last panel of a graphic novel, probably a half-decent one. For me, something went wrong in the cloning here. It, it's it's the worst clone in the lab. This is the really freaky one that needs torching to put out of its misery. As a teenager, it seemed light years ahead, but now it it, it doesn't. It was very superficial. So... Um, yeah, it, it got, it got tiresome for me. So I can't recommend this one. I'll, I'll pass over to Gally to put the final boot in. Oh, I, I would never have would have gone that you would have said not recommend. <laughs> <laughs> I won't oh. even recommend it on, on any level, like on a ridiculous, silly level. I just, no, I just no, no. don't, I, I don't think you should. I think maybe three could, should be the end. Maybe we no, should watch it all together when you, when yeah, you come well, I think over. We should. Yeah. It'll be a good hate watch. Um, well, uh, so unfortunately this shit sandwich doesn't have a positive end. Unfortunately. Where's the bun? Um, Where's the nice bun at the end, Gary? There isn't any. It fell out the bottom. <laughs> Where's the baguette? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't think you're going to be any surprises for me. It's a not recommend. Um, I'll certainly not equate, uh, the people involved to some sort of weird Milgram experiment like Devlin. Um, but there definitely is a lack of, <laughs> there's definitely a lack of accountability, um, with the, with the creatives and, it, you know, Sigourney can do what she wants. She's entitled to do that. She's gotten herself into a position where, you know, rightfully through a talent and a, and a hard work and dedication, you know, she can do whatever she wants. Um, the way that I see it and, and bear with me, this might be a really piss poor analogy, but it's how I rationalized it after looking at everyone's Twitter responses is it's a bit like your favorite auntie and uncle who have been married for 20 odd years and you love them and you love your uncle and your uncle cheats on you, uh, cheats on your uncle cheats on your auntie. And it's never quite the same. Have you written uh, this down? No, I'm, I'm spitballing. Um, yeah, so that's how I felt. It's like, you know, it's the, your favorite uncle cheating on your favorite auntie. You forgive him, but you can never forget. So I'm, I'm of that opinion. Like, I look at the alien series as an one, two and three. That's, that's my lot for the Ripley story. And this is just some mad experiment that went horribly, horribly wrong. 
Um, and, and to be honest with you, I, I hadn't thought about it until we started doing the series and I, I'm with Devlin. I'll probably never watch it again. Although I will now watch it with you, Matt, uh, just to put another <laughs> just penny to in you. Me. Yeah. Just to see what you're going to see how long you can uh, go for. Uh, after, after Titanic, Titanic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not for me. Um, I really didn't enjoy it at all. And I really did struggle to find the positives outside of all the things that you've mentioned. So I'll not go into them, but certainly from a technical standpoint, you know, there's, there's plenty to look at and think, Oh, I wouldn't mind nicking that for my film. Just put it in a better story. Um, and don't put it in an alien film. Like, like I say, I don't want absurdity. I don't want farce. I don't want my alien films to be lampooned. Um, and I certainly don't want Ripley to be lampooned. So what's going to be interesting is our next episode is going to be on Alien versus Predator by Paul W.S. Anderson, who he's got like, look at his back catalogue. It's going to be an absolute winner. So, um, yeah, what's going to be fascinating is whether or not I actually enjoy it more because I remember really not liking it. Um, but who knows? Uh, stranger things have happened. So um, where can we find Alien Resurrection team for our listeners who decide to just listen to us for nearly two hours and then not listen to us? <laughs> <Just wanna go laughs> yeah. Devlin's going to send uh, everyone a box set. Yeah, yeah he's, he's, uh, so he, many from these dodgy sites. <laughs> you can currently stream on Now Cinema, which is part of Sky, I think. Uh, is it called Now Cinema now? Uh, I just got it Now TV. Yeah, Now TV, yeah. Yeah. No, it, I've I've got something called Now Cinema okay. Sky and Sky an Infinity. What's the Infinity one? Is that Richard Branson again? Yeah, I think so. Virgin Infinity, isn't it? You can rent it uh, on uh, Rakuten TV, Chile, Microsoft, Amazon, all the usual ones. And in America, there might be some strange names for you. Oh God. Uh, Redbox, which is interesting. Uh, uh, something on, what's the on-demand one? I can't see it. Ah, it's gone. Okay, Voodoo Java Africa. Hey! <laughs> Yay, there it is. I love Lexi. All, all of the, all of the best deodorant names, you can get it all from there. The streaming services are a winner. Cool. Well, um, yeah, as you, as you know, listeners, we're going to be moving into Alien versus Predator territory because we've technically agreed that even though it's not part of the franchise, you know, it it's one of them. It's one of them. So we're going to do Alien vs. Predator. We'll do Alien vs. Predator, Requiem, I Cannot See You, and then we'll move into the <laughs> Ridley Scott uh, movies, um, and then that'll be us, uh, unless they make another one, Christ. Um, so, and they yeah, will. And they will. <laughs> they will. We could write one, though. We're, we're, we're getting ideas, aren't we? This is how you do it. You watch them, discuss them for two hours, and then you write down your ideas. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, cool. Um, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? If you're a fan of this here award-winning movie podcast, then you know, <laughs> please do uh, like, subscribe, send us a review via Apple or whatever uh, choice of podcast platform that you listen to us on. That'll be fantastic. May I also jump in? I have not pre-approved this with the team. Uh, shameless shilling. <laughs> I have opened a web store and we will very soon be offering some form of merch we don't know what yet but you can you can buy some prints of some of the cover images if this cover turns out nice you might be able to buy a print of it if it's shit you won't Uh, excellent well there you go and we've got two box sets to give away all with no extra content so it's just the films (laughs) absolutely what you want right no one's got time to watch extra (laughs) extra features as well so uh, you get that beautiful low resolution (laughs) 
<laughs> keeping the Blu-rays. Yeah, and you've got to pay for postage because, come on, we're not giving this shit for free. This <laughs> <laughs> Okie dokie. Well, it's time to say our goodbyes. Um, so, um, I had nothing. Honestly, I didn't even want to, I didn't even want to recount another line from this here shit script. So I'm going to do my, I'm going to do my Harry Dunn from Dumb and Dumber. I'm going home. I'm walking home. It's Gally in Glasgow signing out. Stay safe, everyone. Yeah, hey, son. I'll give you my authorization code. It's E-A-T-M-E. It's Devin in London. Sleep when you die, man. It's Patrick and Cardiff. Great. She's a toaster of it. Can we leave now? It's Matt in South Korea. Thanks very much for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.